Welcome to the Lift Church podcast. We pray that this message encourages you and inspires you to live up to your God-given potential. Give us a fresh start. Give us a new life, a new heart. And, and, and basically, that's, that's what God's all about. That's what He loves. And, and so he, we have this master with these three servants. The master was gone away for a long trip, and so he calls the servants together, and he gives them a little bit of his wealth, um, just for the time that he's going to be away. So to one man, he gives five talents, to another, he gives two talents, and to the third man, he gives one talent. Again, we think, talent, one talent, what does that mean? You get one gift, you can sing, but you can sing and dance, and then you can sing, dance, and act. You're going to, no, we're not talking about those kind of talents, we're talking about money. Uh, a talent was the largest denomination of money that was used in Roman times, and that could be worth around 20 years wages. So that even the man with one talent was given 20 years wages to use. And so uh, the five talent man goes and puts that five talents to work and he doubles it. So does the two talent man, he doubles his as well. And then the third man, he takes that one talent, buries it in the ground, and just waits for the master's return. Master goes for a long, long trip. We don't know how long. We just know that it's long. He comes back, and then he takes these three servants, uh, and he asks for an account of what they did with the talents that they were given. The five-talent man and the two-talent man come to the master, and they say, Master, you entrusted us with this much. We have doubled it. The master replies to them, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with little. I will put you in charge of much. Come and enter your master's happiness. One thing that I like to point out is that the master doesn't require the servants to give him back any amount of the money that was invested. It was theirs now. I don't know if they knew that at the start, but now what they have done with it, they get to keep. And I think, again, this is the picture that God gives to us, what he's entrusted us with. We get to enjoy. We get to use we get to put into our lives. He doesn't just say, I'm giving you something, I'm gonna take it back at the end of the day, and you're gonna be a dry, empty husk. No, he wants to give you an amazing life. He gives you an investment that is worth his weight in gold. Finally, the one talent man comes up to the master, and he says this, I know that you're a hard man, and so I was afraid, and I hid this talent, and, um, and, and so here it is. And the master says to him, you wicked, lazy man. He says, you did less than the least. And so he takes that talent, gives it to the ten talent man, and then he casts this servant out. A little bit of a sad ending to this parable. And I think that over the course of these four weeks, we can all agree that the one talent man severely regretted his decisions. He, he, who, who wants to be that one talent man? Who wants to uh, go through all of this and then to be told, you wicked, lazy person. You have done less than the least. And I think sometimes that is a bit of a wake-up call for me. How am I going? What am I doing? And that's why we have this series, because I believe that this story packs so many tools that we can use in our everyday decision-making. And I, I believe that it will lead us to live a life full, yeah? So who wants the final tool? Oh my gosh, you guys. I, have I put you to sleep with this story? Fabulous, that was, 
I think that was the worst response I've ever got. <laughs> Who wants the final talk? Yeah. All right, cool, cool, you're on board? All right, awesome, we can go ahead then. The final tool that I want to leave with you is this. Seize your next step. Seize your next step. And I use the word seize very literally in the sense that you have to grab a hold of it. You have to pull it in. It's not just like, oh, I'll take it. No, 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 you seize it. It's a, it, it, it's a deliberateness about this, this step that you're about to take. When we look at this story with these three slaves, one of the uh, things that popped out to me about the differences between a two and five talent man and the one talent man was the way that they went about their job. They went about their duty. They went about what they were given. And one of the things that was very different was found in verse 16 when it says that the five talent man, the moment he received the talent, he went at once. He went at once. I don't think Jesus uses words that he doesn't need to use. He's got a 33-year lifespan on this earth. Every word that he says, I believe, is deliberate. And when he says that the five-talent man went at once, I think it means something. I think it means that we don't, uh, that we have to seize our next steps. I think it means that we don't have a time to delay the things that are happening in our lives. I think that the, uh, the, 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 the five-talent man in particular and the one-talent man stand in complete contrast with one another. And so the five-talent man went at once. I believe that the one-talent man took his time. I believe that he started to think about what he was about to do. I think he started to process what was put in his life and I think he started to try to find the best option. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's a problem with how he was processing. You know, over the last few years, I, I, I love development, uh, organizational development. I love that kind of stuff. I love leadership. I'm studying a master's in leadership at the moment and, and I'm just learning so much cool stuff. And one of the things that I've noticed over the last few years is this continued reference to a bias to an action. In particular, if you are forming a team and you are wanting to recruit new people to your team, one of the things that experts are saying is that a key characteristic of a good teammate or a good employer, employee, employee, sorry, a good employee is that they have a bias toward action. And I thought that was really interesting. In particular, because I am not biased toward action. I am the complete opposite, naturally speaking. I love to sit and I love to think. A uh, 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 bias toward action is, is something that I have developed over time and I was wondering why this was so important. And what we are finding is that nowadays people are too smart for their own good. Everyone has education available to them. If you live in Australia, I'm still studying and I love that the government is paying for my studies. It's amazing. It allows us to improve ourselves. And not only do we have education uh, that all the way up to high school is free, and even in uh, uh, unis they give you, uh, 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 what do you call it? Female, uh, um, text. And at the same time, we also have Mr. Google, Dr. Google, that, is, that enables us to learn and to find out lots of stuff uh, is really interesting. We, we've got something called Lib Talks coming up in about a month and a half time, and, and we're going to be talking about health and well-being, and we've got a doctor friend who's, who's really awesome, and he's going to be speaking about uh, 
uh, health in a physical sense and, and how to uh, get better at health and well-being. And one of the things that he said is that it's really annoying that people come in nowadays with preconceived notions of what they're sick with because of Dr. Google. And, and, and he, he was talking about his mom came in with his son and this, um, the son was sweating a lot. He was a sweaty kid. And um, the mom had done research on Dr. Google and found out that too much sweat could mean cancer. And so she came to this doctor and, and she said, doctor, I think my son's got cancer. And my doctor friend, who is a really nice guy, so he said, I don't know how to say this, but he was a little bit on the tough side. And so he said, ma'am, your son does not have cancer. He could lose a little bit of weight, though. But it's this weird thing where we have so many avenues to knowledge. And one of the problems with all that knowledge is that sometimes it cripples us. It takes us down the wrong avenues, and it takes us down these alleys and, and bunny trails on our lives. I remember I was I was in the Singapore Army for a couple of years and I was a, a scout. Basically, I was supposed to be uh, somewhat elite infantry. Do not quote me; I'm not elite at all. Um, and we were teams of four. There were two of us uh, corporals, and then there were two sergeants. And um, it was I found it hilarious how they formed our team because they took the best sergeant from that that cohort and the worst sergeant from that cohort. And they put them together in this team. So we had the best and the worst, and then there were two of us guys. Um, and, and we went out and did missions and all that kind of stuff. And the two sergeants were, were um, chosen uh, to go into a specialist course because they were well-educated. They were well-educated. Singapore is a weird place. The more educated you are, the more uh, they, they think that you, you can do everything in life. It's a, it a weird country. Um, and so we had these two sergeants, and they were both well-educated. They were both heading towards um, uh, big like universities and all that kind of stuff. That, that, that was available to them. The big difference between the best and the worst was their bias toward action. One of them made decisions, stuck by those decisions, and we went for it. The other sergeant was, let's wait a while. Let's think about that. It's like, we can't think about that. There's an enemy that is about 200 meters away from us, and if we don't move, we die. That's how it works. And, and I hope I'm illustrating the fact that a bias toward action is something that's really important. In seizing our next steps, we need to stop processing and thinking over the top, and we need to start doing things. I believe that God has given many of you guys instructions on what is your next step, but because you're over-processing, you haven't even done the next step. You're, you're asking God, God, what happens after that next step? You want to know what happens after that next step? You want to know what happens after the next, next step? You are wanting to know what happens 10 steps in advance, and you're not willing to take that next step because the 10 steps in advance is still clouded to you. That is not seizing your next step. That is waiting on something. And so I started thinking about that. What, why do we do that? Why do we stop ourselves from seizing opportunities and next steps that have become clear to us, that have been given to us? I believe it's because of a problem of over-processing. Over-processing. And that's a really funny word, because when you process something, you break it down into chunks. 
you break it down and, and you, into manageable, understandable chunks, yeah? You know, but you have a computer that processes stuff, it takes something complex and it makes it simple, understandable, categorizes them, blocks them up. Simple, break down, that's what processing does. Your digestive system processes food, it breaks it down into chunks that is usable. But what happens with over-processing in our minds is that it goes beyond the point of breaking it down into chunks that are manageable and usable, and it starts to build it up into an unmanageable picture. It starts to build it up into something bigger than it should be. And this is something that I have done so often in my life. I've taken something that was straightforward and simple, and I made it so complex that it became such a weight on my shoulders, because it was big, not in reality, but in my mind. We over-process so much in our lives, and partly because our world that we live in makes information so available to us. You know that, because I did this, don't do this, when I thought, when I was still single, and I thought a girl like me, you can type into Google, how do I know a girl likes me? And then you will get a million hits on Google telling you that if they flick their hair that way, that means they like you, but if they flick their hair that way, that means that they're not really that into you. And then you start processing, you start staring at how she flicking her head. Oh my gosh! Why don't you just talk to the girls? Like, no, no, she flicked her head the wrong way. She's not ready for me. Oh my God, we over-process. We've got so much information and we don't know what to do with it. And we become like the one talent man. We stop. We bury stuff. We do nothing about our next steps. And we end up doing less than the least because at least the least was a tiny step forward. But you didn't even do that this morning, I want to talk to you about two tyrants of over-processing. Really proud of that title that I gave to them. Sounds so punchy. Tyrants of over-processing. These two tyrants were big, big bad news in my life. And, and they were, in effect, um, using up so much of my processing power and taking uh, my direction, my gaze away from what was really important placing it on things that were inconsequential. They were tyrants because they manipulated. They were tyrants because they oppressed. They were tyrants because they hoarded my attention. And this morning, I want to talk to you about two tyrants. And I believe that each one of them you need to break from in order to be able to seize your next step. The first tyrant of over-processing is the people-pleaser. The people-pleaser. Notice that the first thing that one talent man says to the master when giving an account, he said these words, I knew that you are a hard man. I knew that you are a hard man. And before I realized this whole Hebrew culture of slavery being a benevolent, gracious thing, I used to think that this servant was saying, I knew that you are a heartless Man, that you were oppressing me, that, 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 that you would take from me, that you would press me down. But when I started to think through the lens of, no, in Hebrew slavery, completely different thing. They, they, were, they were taken in by a master who cared for them, who 
was trying to give them a fresh start. Look at what happened to the five talents and the two talent man. They were given that resource and they were allowed to keep that resource. And another form of this parable when John says that they were then given cities to look after because they did well with the little that they were given at the start. This was not a heartless man. But in this servant's opinion, this was a hard man. And I dare to add two words to that. He was hard to please. He was hard to please. This servant's mentality was that the master was not a heartless man, but he was a man that was hard to please. There was a situation in my life, a time, an opportunity really, uh, in, in my previous church, and I was still a younger man, and, and my pastor gave me a leadership position in this project that was coming up, and I was really excited. It was the first time that I was leading as the number one leader in that team. I was normally the second guy. I would look after um, things for another leader. But this time around, I was given the team. I was given the project. I was excited. At the same time, I didn't realize this at the time, but I had the tyrant of people pleasing in my ear. And so when I received this team and I started to think about the project, I wasn't thinking about good next steps. I was thinking about next steps I could take that would please my pastor. I saw this as an opportunity for me to, to really like get my pastor's approval, to let him see, oh wow, Nate, you're a great leader. And if you know my pastor, he's a real creative person. He always comes out with original ideas, great ideas. And so I thought that what I needed to do to prove myself to this hard to please man was that I needed to come up with creative leadership solutions. And so I came up with a few creative leadership solutions. And because the tyrant of people pleasing was so loud in my head, I did not consider that the solutions that I came up with were really bad. They were terrible. They were shocking. And I'm a, I'm a smart person. I know that they were shocking, but I didn't know that they were shocking. Just all my power, all my processing power was taken up thinking, oh my gosh, my pastor's gonna be so happy that I made this decision. He's gonna go, wow, Nate, you make such great decisions. I'm gonna put you in charge of many more things. <laughs> that was a scenario of plans for a heart. Creative, Trump, usable. Creative, Trump, sensible. Creative, Trump, just natural processing that I am totally able and totally capable of doing. But I thought that I needed to please a pastor that I thought was hard to please. So the project went along. My team did not like my decisions. They started to get disgruntled. And I thought being a good leader now meant me being a tough leader. Oh, obstacles. I want to steamroll them. <laughs> didn't, have, didn't help that the obstacles of my teammates are steamrolling them. Your point is not needed right now. <laughs> I went through with it. Finally, the whole project just fell apart. This was, remember, this was my first leadership position. And uh, the whole thing fell apart. And I was called into a debrief with my pastor. And we talked about it. And halfway through the conversation, he said these words. He said, Nate, why did you not come to me? I didn't have words for it, but now when I look back, I think I would have said, which is, I thought that you are a hard man. I thought you're a hard man. Because if I came to you and I told you that I was struggling with things, I'm not capable. 
you would take away from me my dreams, my future, where I think I was heading. I thought you would oppress me. Now I love my pastor. I did not think like that of him, but I did put things of God into my head. And he was taking all of my ability to see clearly. So I didn't really have an answer, but I think I thank God that my pastor is a, a God lover, that he has the Holy Spirit in him. And I said, I believe the Holy Spirit. And maybe he's just really insightful as well. But he said these words to me. He said, you are a good leader. Never forget it. I think when he first said those words, I was stunned into complete silence. Because it was like every bit of skin had been pulled back. And what was underneath was revealed. And he said, Nate, I did not give you this project because you needed to prove yourself. I gave you this project because you already are a good leader. And he said it again, Nate, you are a good leader. From that point on, the power of the people pleaser was completely diminished in my life. Still to be careful of it, there's a tyrant still going around every now and then in my head. I'm able to catch him a lot quicker now. But in that moment, his power lost its grip over my life. Do you want to know why? It's because in that moment, I discovered something that the two-talent man and the five-talent man used. They knew that the master wasn't asking them to prove themselves. They saw that the master had entrusted them. Look at how they responded to the master. When they came to their master, they said, Master, you entrusted me. And those are three very key words. Because I believe that that can break the power of the people pleaser over anyone's life when you realize that God has entrusted you. Why does it make such a difference? Is because what entrusted means is that God already trusts you. God already trusts you. And because of his trust in you, then he entrusts you with something. He looks at you first, determines where you are at. Remember at the start of this parable, it says that the master gave out the talents according to each ability. He did not give them beyond each of this, their, their ability in order to test them. He knew where they were at. He trusted each and every single one of them. And therefore, out of that trust, you need to hear this. God trusts you. God trusts you. God trusts you. And therefore, he entrusts you. And some of you might be in this moment going, I don't know if I have been entrusted. Well, you have. Because the Bible says so. God distributes gifts to each person according to their ability. He has already given it. And Romans says that the gifts and the calling of God is irrevocable. Irrevocable. God has already seen you. He already knows where you are at. He already knows who you can be. He knows who you are. He knows the mistakes that you're, you've made. He knows the mistakes you are going to make. And still he trusts you enough to entrust you something. When my pastor said, you are a good leader and therefore I gave you this team, suddenly my whole thinking changed. I was no longer needing to live 
to gain my pastors approval. I was no longer needing to live uh, 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 to, to please him. I was living out a higher calling and a higher mission. Yes, many times those missions in a practical came from my pastor, but I knew that I was not serving my pastor, I was serving God. And this is what Galatians 1 verse 10 says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of God. Some of you have been given things, dreams, pictures, deep desires of a life that you can live that will impact people. But those dreams have been derailed, maybe because significant people in your life you thought were hard to please. And honestly, I don't think everyone had a pastor as great as mine, who was listening to Holy Spirit and could shut up the current of people pleasing in my ear. Maybe your parents have been in your ear and saying that if you don't do this, you're not going to be good. If you don't succeed in this, you're not going to be good. Maybe it's a person that you are in a relationship with. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a boyfriend, girlfriend. Maybe it's a fiance. Maybe it's a husband or wife. Maybe it's just someone that you really cherish. And maybe they said something that made you think, if I don't win them over... I'm not good enough. Their opinion doesn't count as much as God's opinion. I do believe that people's opinion can be useful. That was week one, we talked about step out of isolation. I didn't say, you don't need to listen to people. Don't hear that from what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that God's opinion of you as a human being is the most important thing. And he already entrusts you. I believe this morning as I was preparing, I believe that there are some people who have let go of lives and dreams that you are meant to be living. Nothing else is going to satisfy as much as that life that God has given and entrusted you with. And you have let certain things down because the people pleasing you has caused you to over-process and is now derailed and now you are just playing it safe. Or maybe now you're just heading down the wrong direction because you're trying to live out someone else's of you. In order for you to seize the next step, you need to know what God has already entrusted you with. But this is linked to the second tyrant, I call the second tyrant a failure fearer. The failure fearer. I'm going to mess this up. When I wrote that, I was like, why? Why do you torture yourself, mate? You're Asian, your tongue is too big for your mouth. <laughs> the failure fearer. I believe that the failure fearer and the people pleaser are somewhat linked, they're cousins. But I also think that quite often I've met people that their problem is not so much people pleasing, but it's a failure, than the fear of failure. The next thing I want to tell a man said after saying, I knew that you're a hard man, he said this, I was afraid. I was afraid. Fear can be absolutely crippling. And I think many of us get into a space where we think that if we fail, that's it. That's it. We've lost it. And if you know the background story behind the five talent, the two talent, and the one talent man, probably they came from a background of failure. 
They came from a place where they had lost so much money that they were severely in debt, and that's why they were slaves. Two of the three men could look past their previous failure and go, I'm going to live beyond this. I'm not going to allow my previous failure to dictate my future. I'm going to use my previous failure to propel me into the future. But the third man allowed that previous failure to stick in his mind and stop him from, uh, from, from deciding to do anything. What if I fail again? What if I fail? Again, I believe that failure and identity is something that we mix together so much. The question mark is not so much what happens if I fail, but the question that we often are chewing through is what does failure say about me? It's not so much what is going to happen, although that is a part of it, but I think quite often it's what does it say about me? We've got to learn how to live our failures from a less personal space. My failures don't define me. Because if my failures define me, God would never trust me. If my failures define who I am and who I'm always going to be, then God would not have anything to work with. I've got enough failures uh, to, to push God away that if that was what it was like. My failures do not define me, and my future failures do not define me either. There's some people that are so scared to make any more failures because you think that you've hit failure corner in your life. I've been messed up those two times, so I can never mess up again. You know, I, I know couples that are living this out in their relationship. One, couple, uh, one, part, one, one person hurts the other person in this marriage, and now they're so scared to mess up again that they will never say no to anything that the couple says. That make sense? It's like, I've, I've failed that person before, I can't fail them again, so I'll always say yes to them. They stop living their life and they start living a life that someone else has given to them. The failure fearer is powerful, and some of you need to start to recognize why am I not taking my next step? Why? Why is my next step not clear to me? Why is it that I don't have a next step until someone else tells me what I'm supposed to do? Do I not have a next step? Truth is, every single one of us has got next steps. I've got next steps. But often the, the tyrants of people pleasing and failure fearing get into our heads, muddy up the waters, and stop us from knowing what our next steps are. The simple message is that you need to see the next step. The harder message is you need to stop all the other things that are stealing from your ability to see the next step. That's what I want to leave with you this morning. And if the host team can help us out, what I produce is a is a we're calling it a worksheet. It sounds really terrible. No one wants to do a worksheet. So I'm calling it the most amazing tool you will ever receive. <laughs> My hosts are going to give out the most beneficial tool for your life. And basically on this sheet, there's a whole bunch of questions. At the top, there are four tools that we've given to you this month. Step out of isolation. 
embrace risk-taking, seekfulness, understanding that God has placed something into your hands, and number four, <coughs> seize the next step. This morning, I hope that you are going to take some time, maybe even just use the time that we have here this morning. We've got a little bit more time, and Ben, sorry, can I just get you guys up? And if you guys want to use this morning, this time, in this space, without the distractions, to go through those questions and to start to answer some of them, maybe some next steps will become clearer to you. Maybe for some of you, stepping out of isolation is the most important. Maybe for some of you, seedfulness is something that you've never done before. But what can you do? What can you do in the next week, in the next three weeks, in the next three months? What can you do to live out what God has already placed in your lives. My prayer is that as you take, take this seriously, that there will be a lot of clarity that comes to you. And this morning, I, I want to I wanna take the opportunity to put forward a couple of final thoughts. I really sense as I was preparing for this morning that there are people that that have been living with things hanging over your life. What over-processing can feel like is like there's this cloud around your head. There's this cloud around your head and it's just hanging there. And it weighs down heavily on you. I don't have to research to back this up. I've got a little bit of research to back this up, but overprocessing in serious forms leads to depression, leads to anxiety. If you've been living a depressed, anxious life, it's because you've been overprocessing. Studies show that when girls get together, I don't know why they did this on girls, not my research, someone else did it, but when girls get together and they start talking about the negative things that are happening in their life, higher chance they're going to result in depression. Why? Because they're over-processing a situation that didn't need to be over-processed. It was meant to be simple. Forgive. Apologize. Move on. No, we need to talk about this. We need to talk about this. We need to get back into that space and just go around in circles and circles until we build up a whirlwind of depression. I'm not saying this to make any of you feel dumb. I'm saying this to simplify, to help you process what might be going on in your head. I believe that God wants you to live a life without regret. I believe that God has given you the keys to live a life that is amazing, that is on purpose, on point, that it gives you a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. I believe that he's given you skills and talents that, that, that need to be refined and honed so that it's going to impact people's lives. I believe that your life can stand for something and be of significance. But if you fail to take your next steps, you will never be able to get into that place. And so this morning, you need to break. Maybe the tyrant in your head is the people pleaser. Maybe the tyrant in your mind is that of the failure fearer. Maybe you've got another tyrant. Those are the two that I can think of that have been impacting my life. But maybe for you, it's something else. Maybe for you, there's something else that's just nagging and nagging and nagging. And whenever you get into God's presence, whoo, I can sense that God's pulling me somewhere. The moment you step out of those doors, it's like, whoo, 
I'm taking my weight back on. If that is you, you need to deal with it. You need to seriously deal with it. I, I'm not here to offer you some band-aid solution where, 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 you know, just one moment and you're completely set free. But I'm asking you to think about the fact that God has got you living a mission and what are you doing about it? God's got a life set up for you that is richer, more amazing than anything else. And are you listening to Him? Or are you listening to a tyrant that is stealing from you? Tyrants will always steal from you. But our God is so gracious and merciful, stoked anger and abounding in love. He's on your side. He's fighting for you. He's got the best for you. So maybe that's you this morning and you recognize that there's some some stuff that is stealing from you. We'd love to pray with you. Like I said, it's not a band-aid solution, but sometimes you just need to hear truth from God. And maybe in the confusion and the noise that's going in your life that's a little bit hard, we'll stand with you. We'll pray with you. We'll believe that God's got something amazing for you. There's another group of people that I want to talk to. There are people that haven't made a decision for Particular, I get the sense that sometimes we approach God as though He hasn't approved of them yet. That He's still waiting for you to get your life back in order. That's not the God that I serve. Because if that's the God I serve, I would never have been able to make, make it. I will be here as a hypocrite and a failure. But because my God saw me for who I am, that while I was still a sinner, He gave His life for me. He does the same for you. Christ doesn't die again. He's already died for us. He's taken all the sin, all the shame, given you a new start, given you a new life. That's what Christ has done. So when you say the sinner's prayer, it's just accepting what Christ has already done. He's already done it. If you will, it's like there's a coupon in the bank waiting for you to redeem it. You don't have to wait for God to go, oh, maybe I'll sign the check for your sin. God's already done that. It's like, you want it? It's here. Maybe that's your next step. That's your next step. I want to lead you into a simple prayer. A prayer that will accept Jesus into your life as your Lord and your Savior. So if I can get everyone just to close your eyes and bow your heads. I just want to lead you into this prayer together. Every Christian, say this prayer along with me as well. Dear Jesus, I know that you died on the cross for my sin. I know you washed me clean. I know you make me whole. I invite you into my life. Be my Lord and my Savior. Amen. Thank you for tuning in today. If you would like to find out more about Lyft, check out our website at theliftchurch.com.au.